All right, well, we are picking up where we left off last week in our study of J.C. Ryle's A Call to Prayer, and um, we're at section three or chapter three, uh, titled Prayer, the Most Neglected Duty, page six, and the PDF version of A Call to Prayer for those who are following along or listening in. Let me open this up in a word of prayer, and then we will dive right into tonight's study. Father, it is a great privilege to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ to consider the value, importance, and necessity of prayer. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for how often we neglect prayer, how often we fail to remember how your word testifies to the power of prayer, and Lord, how prayer ultimately changes us. It doesn't change you. You're eternal and um, immutable, everlasting God, but Prayer is a powerful means whereby you accomplish your purposes in time and space through your people. And Lord, it ultimately aligns us with your desires and your will. So we ask, God, that we would be those who grow in our reverence for prayer and our um, propensity to prayer and our desires to model the spiritual discipline in our private and corporate lives. Lord, we ask that you would bring forth a revival of prayer at First Baptist Church of Edna, that many in our congregation would would come before your throne of grace expectantly, boldly, on the basis of Christ's once-for-all work made on their behalf. And, Lord, that those realities of our union with Christ and everything that he's done for us, that those realities would drive us to frequent communion with you so that we might be the people we've called us to be in Christ and that our church might be um, the beacon of light that it's been called to be here in Jackson County. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to... Give us wisdom to accurately understand and, and and apply your word tonight. Father, help me to just facilitate good conversation and, and to ensure that this lesson is, is, is enriching and edifying for all those who are participating in it. Father, may we leave here changed by these truths and, and encouraged in our walk with you. We love you, God, and we give you thanks for this time. May it be pleasing in your sight in a time of worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so section slash chapter three, depending on what terminology you want to use, we are on the heading, Prayer, the Most Neglected Duty. And I thought as we look to the next two sections of Ryle's work tonight that it would be useful for us to look to 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 12 through 25. And the... Special emphasis of that passage is going to be found in verse 23, and I think it's really going to set the table well for our discussion tonight. Would somebody be willing to read that passage for us just to get us started? It's kind of lengthy. Which one? Uh, 1 Samuel 12, uh, verses 12 to 25. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, you said unto me, Nay, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore behold, the king whom you have chosen, and whom you have desired, and behold, the Lord hath set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord, and serve him, and obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. 
Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain, that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking you a king. So Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not, for we have added unto all our sins this evil, to ask us a king. And Samuel said unto the people, Fear not, you have done all this wickedness, you turn not aside from following the Lord, yet wait a minute, I read that wrong, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and turn ye not aside, for then should you go after vain things which cannot profit nor deliver. For they are vain. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it hath praised the Lord to make you his people. Mm. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things he hath done for you. But if you shall still do wickedly, you shall be consumed, both you and your king. Amen. Thank you for reading that uh, passage, Alan. I know it was lengthy. A um, lot of really rich themes there. Um, we see coming off the heels of Saul being appointed as king over the nation of Israel. Um, we see Samuel exhorting the people of Israel to um, acknowledge their sin that they've committed um, before the Lord um, for their idolatry and for their failure to ultimately depend upon him and their desire for a king. Um, he calls them to recognize God's sovereignty over them as, um, as God, as the, pe- as the creator and the savior who has called the people of Israel to himself. But really what stood out to me in that passage out of all those themes that we could derive from it is verse 23 when Samuel says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you but I will instruct you in the good and right way. So Samuel is pointing out the sin of prayerlessness in that passage. He's saying, I am not going to cease to pray for you, the people of God, in spite of all of your sin, in spite of everything that has caused you to come to this point of demanding an earthly king, failing to recognize your ultimate dependency upon God. I am going to pray for you. I'm going to intercede for you. I'm going to be your um, mediator, as it were, between the nation and God. And this is a powerful reminder for us as we prepare to embark upon this section of J.C. Ryle's work um, that, number one, of course, we have a ultimate mediator, a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us. We're going to talk about that tonight. But as far as it pertains to us, we need to be those who make intercessions for others, and we need to make it, um, we need to make it a, a regular habit to not only pray for ourselves, but to pray for others, even those of whom have committed great sin, even those of whom may stand in opposition to us, regardless of what that opposition looks like or what the grounds of it may be, even if it's their own sin, we need to be a people that prays. We need to pray for ourselves. We need to pray for others. We need to even pray for our enemies, as Christ teaches and um, as we as we learn elsewhere in the Scriptures as well. So that's just a little opening thought for us as we prepare to dive in now to chapter 3. Um, the first couple of paragraphs I have just noted here for 
there to be some volunteers to read. So if somebody would be willing to read, uh, starting with Some Never Pray, go ahead and just read, if you don't mind, just read from there to the word common, which comes right before the bold heading, Some Use Form Only on page 7. So somebody just to read that snippet, and then we'll talk a little bit about it after we read it together. Anyone want to volunteer for that? Thanks. Some never pray. I ask whether you pray because there is no duty in religion so neglected as private prayer. We live in days of abounding religious professions. There are more places of public worship now than there ever were before. There are more persons attending them than there ever were before. And yet, in spite of all this public religion, I believe that there is a vast neglect of private prayer. Mm -hmm. It is one of those private transactions between God and our souls that no eye sees, (coughs) and therefore one that men are tempted to pass over and leave undone. I believe that thousands never utter, utter a word of prayer at all. They eat, they drink, they sleep, they rise, they go forth to their labor, they return to their homes. They breathe God's air, they see God's sun, they walk on God's earth, they enjoy God's mercies. They have dying bodies, they have judgment and eternity before them, but they never speak to God. They live like the beasts that perish, they behave like creatures without souls. They have not one word to say to him in whose hand are their life and breath and all things, and from whose mouth they must one day receive their everlasting sentence. How dreadful this seems, but... If the secrets of men were only known, how common. Thank you, Sam, for reading that. Um, I want us to talk about particularly um, the second uh, the second sentence in that paragraph we just read. Go back to page six, and the second sentence says, "We live in days of abounding religious profession." Footnote is seven. You'll see it right there at the bottom of page six. Ryle clarifies what he's saying there. He's saying, we live in days of abounding religious expression of faith in Jesus Christ, whether it be verbal or written. We, we live in a day where there are lots and lots of people who profess faith in Christ. And in light of that statement, in light of everything that he says in that paragraph, I want us to think about this particular question and take some time to discuss it amongst ourselves. In light of that sentence, in light of the context undergirding that paragraph we just read together, how do you think that the professions of faith referenced in that sentence, or professions of faith in general that we might even hear today and be familiar with, how do you think those professions of faith are undermined by a lack of prayer, by the sin of prayerlessness? Let's talk about that a little bit as a group. So whether it be Ryle living in the 19th century in England or whether it be us living in Jackson County in 2021, how does a lack of prayer ultimately undermine one's profession of faith? connection with God, but prayer is you talking with God daily Mm -hmm. and having that personal connection because the Bible is personal to your life because you can apply it to everything, but prayer is you pouring your heart out to God Mm -hmm. and talking to Him daily. And without that specific relationship and friendship with Him, 
your relationship isn't what it could be. Okay. It's a great thought for sure. So, right, as we kind of talked about last week, anybody can read words on a page and, and, and process what ultimately will lead to head knowledge, right? Taking in information, gaining head knowledge, really reducing God and the Christian life to a academic exercise, right? An intellectual exercise. Anybody can do that. The demons have that type of faith. Um, many unbelieving, uh, whether it be ordinary people on the street or unbelieving intellects have that kind of knowledge. They understand the Bible. They can point you to chapter and verse and explain what it means, sometimes even better than believers can do. But when it comes to prayer, we're talking about the the personal, intimate expression of dependency on God, um, the, the, the joy of being able to commune with God and reflecting on how he's revealed himself in Scripture and praising God for those realities. Um, prayer is the act of of strengthening our muscles of faith, as it were. It's, in other words, you're taking what he's revealed himself in Scripture. You ta- you're taking that and you're rearticulating to God your worship of him, your adoration of him, your praise of him, your desire to know him more, and then your desire to live in a way that is in keeping with how he's instructed us to live um, in his word. And as Joanna pointed out, um, we do lose something in our relationship with God by not praying. Um, we lose the intimacy. We even lose the joy. Um, imagine if you were married and um, you only listen to the other person talk. You'd probably know a lot about who they are. You'd know a lot about um, what they like and what they don't like. But if you never express your love for them, your adoration of them, your desire to please them, to serve them, to give back in that relationship, you lose a pretty big part of that relationship, right? I mean, you could even go so far maybe in saying that you really don't have an intimate personal relationship. Um, How much more so would we say that about our relationship with God as um, we being his children in Christ, he being our heavenly father. So Joanne, it's a really great thought there. Any, Any other thoughts about that connection between prayerlessness and a possible undermining of our faith, or of a profession of faith, rather. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, let me give you all another cog uh, to think about here, another perspective for this question. Um, somebody pull up Romans one twenty one. Romans one twenty one. Who wants to read that passage? For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Hmm. So in context, Paul, he's just explained his purpose for writing the book of Romans, which is to unpack the theological and practical significance of the gospel. And, of course, as we know, you can only understand the good news if you first understand the bad news. In uh, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to um, about verse 18 of chapter 3, you have the bad news. In chapter 1, 18, on to um, verse 32 of chapter 1, is how the bad news of sinners being under the wrath of God applies to Gentiles. 
And in that context, verse 21, a major source of condemnation amongst unbelieving Gentiles, according to Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is this. They did not honor God or give thanks to Him. And the consequences of that lack of thanks is seen from verse 22 on to verse 32, on throughout the end of the chapter. Some dreadful consequences take place. You see rampant homosexuality. You see rampant idolatry. Kids being disobedient to parents. Um, You have intelligent people losing all rational sensibility regarding ethical and moral um, principles. You basically see the absolute collapse of the individual, the absolute collapse of the family, and the absolute collapse of a society or civilization, all stemming ultimately from a failure to give thanks to God and honor Him as God. In light of that principle of Romans one twenty one, how do you think that is ultimately expressed when people do not pray to God? People who profess faith in Jesus Christ but have absolutely no prayer life whatsoever. Again, we're thinking through the lens of Ryle's argument here. Do you think that connection could be potentially valid? We would all admit our prayer life isn't what it should be. We could all improve in this area, certainly. But we're talking about the person who professes faith in Christ, but never, if you look at the corpus of their life, as Ryle's saying here, they never make a time or an effort to go to God to praise Him through the act of prayer, to express their dependency upon Him through the act of prayer, to pray on behalf of others to the Lord? What do you think of that connection between the principle of Romans one twenty one and prayerlessness in the life of somebody who professes faith in Christ? There is no connection. Yeah, that's exactly right. If, if you are somebody who knows the Lord... You're going to be thankful, right? Inherently, a person who has come to grips with the truths of the gospel and with the reality of everything that God has done for them, not only in salvation, not only in sanctification, but even as simple as just literally second by second sustaining them in their existence, allowing them to enjoy good, gracious gifts in this life. When somebody comes to grips with those realities through a work of sovereign grace and transforming a spiritually dead sinner to spiritually alive, the natural overflow of that heart is praise. It's prayer. It's praising God in prayer. It's um, wanting to be made like Christ and recognizing that only God by His Spirit can accomplish that. It's praying for others. It's praying for the church. It's praying for leadership. Prayer is the natural overflow of a thankful heart. And I wrote here, in my margin, that a lack of prayer equals evidence of not being thankful to God, and a lack of being thankful to God equals evidence that a person is either not saved or living in a habitual pattern of sin. Um, Prayer is essential, my friends, for expressing our gratitude to God, among other things. It's essential for intercessory work. It's essential for Um, that intimacy, as you talked about, Joanna. But I think really fundamentally, when I read Ryle here, he talks about thousands of those who profess faith in Christ. They never utter a word of prayer at all. They eat, drink, sleep, rise. They have work. They have homes. They breathe God's air. They have his son. They walk on the earth. They enjoy all these mercies that God provides them with in their life. But they never give thanks to God. 
They never express that adoration to the God whom they claim as Heavenly Father, as Savior and Redeemer. Um, That's important for us to remind ourselves of. Lest we act like an unbeliever, may we be those who routinely go before God in prayer. I think that's the key takeaway from um, that first paragraph. Any other thoughts before we... We move on to the next uh, couple of paragraphs, and I'm going to actually read those for us. Any thoughts? All right, well, moving on to the next section. Um, Still in the third heading, but the next section under the bold heading, some use form only. This is very convicting, uh, I thought, at least as I was reading this before tonight. Ryle says that, I believe there are tens of thousands whose prayers are nothing but a mere form, a set of words repeated by rote without a thought about their meaning. Some say over a few hasty sentences picked up in the nursery when they were children. Some content themselves with repeating the creed, which, as we see in the footnote, is a reference to the Apostles' Creed. He says, some content themselves with repeating the Apostles' Creed, forgetting that there is not a request in it. Some add the Lord's Prayer as reference to in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9-13, through 13, but without the slightest desire that its solemn petitions may be granted. And then he gets to the heart of the matter here. Many, even of those who use good forms, mutter their prayers after they have gotten into bed or while they wash or dress in the morning. Men may think what they please, but they may depend upon it that in the sight of God, this is not praying. Words said without heart are as utterly useless to the soul as the drum beating of the poor heathen before their idols. Where there is no heart, there may be lip service and tongue work, but there is nothing that God listens to. There is no prayer. Saul, I have no doubt, said many a long prayer before the Lord met him on the way to Damascus. But it was not till his heart was broken that the Lord said, He prayeth, Acts 9.11. Does this surprise you? Listen to me, says Ryle, and I will show you that I am not speaking as I do without reason. Do you think that my assertions are extravagant and unwarrantable? Give me your attention, and I will soon show you that I am only telling you the truth. Now, two texts that I want us to look at before opening up the floor for further group discussion. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Sai, you want to take that one for us? Don't have a Bible? Um, I thought you raised your hand. It's all good. Okay, well, somebody with a Bible, uh, would somebody like to take Isaiah 1, 10 through 16? Thank you. And then Matthew 15, verses 1 through 9. Somebody would like to take that text. Oh, Joanna? Sorry. Uh, Matthew 15, 1 through 9 was the second one. So, Isaiah, Isaiah 1, 10 through 16? Correct. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? 
bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. All right, so again, this is Isaiah. He is declaring an oracle of judgment against the southern kingdom, Judah, for their um, idolatry, for their forsaking of pure religious expression to God. And as a result, we do know um, ultimately that um, judgment would come by way of um, the Babylonians. So, or the Assyrians, rather. So, and I think I said Judah. This is actually the northern kingdom. So, um, Isaiah 1, 10 through 15, essentially in a microcosm, this is the expression of the old covenant people of God failing to express worship to him, including prayer, from a heart that loved him and desired to honor him. Ultimately, their external acts of religion was simply that, shallow, heartless expressions of duty, and as we saw from God, he doesn't take any delight in such expressions of religion. We're going to see that further reiterated in Matthew 15. Uh, Joanna, go ahead and read that for us, please. Then came the Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were saying, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his mother, to his father or his mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. And honor not his mother or his father, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition, ye hypocrites. Well did Esaias prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines and commandments of men. Very, the commandments of men. very good. Appreciate you guys for reading about those passages. So, how do you think those passages, and there's others we could have gone to in both Old and New Testament respectively, but how do you think those passages in supplementation to what Ryle said in this section that we just read together reiterate the emphasis and the necessity of um, having the heart engaged in the act of prayer and in the act of any religious expressions, service in the church, um, sharing the gospel with others, and so on and so forth. How does this really emphasize the necessity um, and the importance of having the heart involved in those actions? He's condemning their celebration of festivals and laws and rules and playing the game of being a Christian, but not ever really connecting with someone who truly loves him. No, that's exactly right. I mean, really, the Matthew 15 passage, um, I think this is really relevant in a lot of churches today who 
they have enough biblical language and Christian terminology sprinkled in to where, you know, it, it really sounds um, noble and it sounds spiritual and it sounds orthodox enough, but they've also sprinkled in tradition into the equation. And their church is essentially a halfway house between biblical precepts on the one hand and the precepts or traditions of men on the other hand. And such religious expression is not pleasing in the sight of God. Um, The tradition of men is just as shallow, heartless, and displeasing to God as we saw being condemned in the Isaiah passage. You had the people of Israel following all of the scrupulous requirements of the law, but not doing it from a heart of wanting to honor the Lord. So they followed all the rules, essentially. Didn't please God. They didn't um, express their um, worship in a way that was flowing from a heart that wanted to honor him and that loved him. The same is true when we incorporate traditions into um, our religious expression. Incorporating relig- or, uh, the traditions of men into our religious expression ultimately is a symptom of a heart that doesn't want to honor the Lord or worship him in a way that's pleasing in his sight. Why? Well, because what we're saying in effect is when we place traditions of men on the same value of Scripture, we're saying that, you know, God, we know that you've given us instruction and in how we need to worship you and how we need to live, but we think that some of these extra-biblical um, preferences and practices you know, they're more relevant today. Uh, they're more palpable today. We want to do those things instead of what you've clearly provided us with in your word. Um, so I think that's a powerful reminder for us today um, as 21st century Christians. Many churches, they might, you know, incorporate a lot of tradition into their um, church services that really in and of themselves, they might not be um, bad on the surface, but they undermine the authority and the sufficiency of God's instruction that he's given to us in scripture. And those practices ultimately reveal a heart um, that's really not uh, in keeping with wanting to honor the Lord as he has, um, as he has prescribed how worship should unfold, including the um, act of prayer, which is itself an act of worship. Um, so I think there's a connection between um, a, a, a heart that is that is overflowing with a desire to worship and honor the Lord and a commitment to um, the authority of Scripture, the, the, um, the clarity of Scripture, the, um, the commands within Scripture, a heart that wants to honor God is going to place great value on those things and not forsake them for the traditions of man. At the same time, um, just before I let you guys comment further on this matter, you can follow all the rules like the people of Israel did, and your heart still not be in it, and that's not pleasing to God. There's a lot of churches today that on paper, doctrinally, you know, they're really solid. Um, they do all of the right things. They say all of the right things. They have all the right ministries, but it, it, it's cold, dry, religious expression that doesn't flow from a wellspring of vibrant piety, a a. a a genuine joy to magnify God from the heart. So those are just some dangers that I think we need to avoid and be mindful of as Christians today. Any other thoughts on on that section there? I think the cares of the world weigh heavy. Um, 
you know, when you first get saved, there's such a, or was for me, such a joy and such an excitement just to be in the house of God, to be mm-hmm. able to come and worship, to come and pray, to, to know that you belong. Yeah. And as you go along, you let the cares of the world, you know, uh, weigh you down, and it's uh, you, you neglect to remember all those blessings, and so it's it's really it's really hard to f- keep yourself from going through the motions and keeping your heart in tune. So I, I agree with. I mean, it's very convicting this this lesson. I, I'm enjoying it because it's reminding me what's important. Amen. But the cares of the world weigh down on you. You 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 let the negativity. And the corruption that you see going on around you hinder you from worshiping because you're thinking, what's what's the point? Mm. You're not like-minded. When the reality is, is who cares? It's about him. Who cares if you're like-minded? You right. pray. Right. Who cares if you if if everybody else goes along with you? You sing. Amen. Who cares? You do what you know God right. has put on your heart. That's and right. I, I've been neglecting to do that. So. This has been very, very good. But I, I, I understand exactly what he's saying. You don't mean to, but you're, you forget, and it's like, oh my gosh, what happened to me? Where, where, where what? How did I do this? You know, how do you forget? Absolutely. So, anyway. That's great. Any other thoughts here? This is good stuff. I don't know if this helps, or maybe I'm missing a point. But in Isaiah one, I always think about the idea of today's church that reckless. Uh, Theology that uh, basically, let me try to sum it up that churches uh, focus on the time, but like it seems like a party time of singing and worship, and they don't focus on giving God glory, they focus on the sinner most of the time, and you're, they're missing the point. And, you, and the showmanship of it all, right? We and, want it to be a show, we want it to appeal to the senses, and stuff like that. And uh, they have the pastors are like, how long would you like us to teach to you or something? They say, 30, heck, we'll do in 15 minutes if you want so, you know, we can worship more. But they're not understanding the idea. Uh, that's just every time I hear uh, uh, that part of uh, Isaiah 1, I always think of the theology of today's church. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, it was on the news about that church, supposedly like every 45 minutes they did like a small little concert concert. Uh, uh, I think it was Houston or somewhere. Yeah, hmm. Maybe not. But either way, there was like a little concert that uh, they did. Uh, not, it could have been like a fundraiser maybe or something, but I'm not sure. Um, or uh, there was an Instagram post a long time ago. I remember seeing these ch- uh, teenagers or young adults just running around the uh, church as the band was playing uh, through the chairs and everything. Uh, uh, just looking like they're messing around. So, I just wanted to add that about... Sure. Long, so. Very good. Are you talking about, like, the church Joel Osteen goes to and preach in Houston? It'd probably be a similar church <laughs> if it wasn't that one. That's kind of where my mind went to, Cy. Um, well, any, any other thoughts before we move on? It makes me think of sometimes... I don't know, whenever we were going through it earlier even, I was thinking about praying before you eat your food. Mm. And that doesn't seem like a big deal, but the more I think about it, the more... You know, you repeat the same things over and over again, and you know that you're supposed to do it before you eat, so then you just get in the habit of saying the same things and you forget 
what you're saying and how important it really mm. is to really feel what you're saying. That I've even I've caught myself doing it sometimes. And I had a Sunday school teacher, Terry, at our old church, and he told us that he was or he wakes up in the morning and he thanks God for allowing him to get up, you know, and start another day. And whenever he starts repeating himself over and over again, and forgetting. Or not forgetting, but it starts to become a tradition. He makes it a point to do different and say something else because he wants it to be sincere. And mm. it just made me think about it. And then this rem- this lesson reminded me of it. And I, it yeah. seems really small, but it is a big deal. No, that's a, that's very important. I mean, we're talking to the God of reality. You know, I mean, the one Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one being who existed before anything ever was, who sustains us every moment of our existence, both in this life and in the life to come, we have to remember and recognize who we're talking to when we pray. And I don't know about you guys, but I found myself just, you know, you get hurried or you get um, other things going on. Your mind starts wondering when you pray or you got a food in front of you and you say, Lord, thank you for this food. Bless it to the nourishment of our bodies. Let me eat. I'm starving, you know. Um, But we have to remember, you know, we're talking to the King of Kings, the Most High God, and it matters. There should be a reverence, even in the simple ways of thanking Him. You know, coming back from the gym tonight uh, before our lesson and thinking about what we'd be discussing, I, I asked God that even if in all of our times of prayer that we're going to do after we talk about um, our assigned reading for the night, I prayed, Lord, even if there's just one genuine sentence that comes from a heart of pure adoration for you, Lord, may that magnify you. In other words, like, God, help us to be sincere in our prayers um, because we're, we're sinners and we, we're not always as sincere as we need to be. And, and we're always going to be a work in progress through sanctification. But I just think we have to have that mindset of God, you know, even if my prayer is only one sentence long, as long as it comes from a sincere heart and it, and it, and it's, it's, it comes from a desire to honor you supremely, that is where I want to be. I, I don't want to give you an hour of just rote, repetitive, mindless prayer. I'd rather give you 30 seconds of genuine prayer. Um, hopefully you can give an hour of genuine prayer. But um, I, I like that insight, Joanna. I think that's very helpful for us to be mindful of. I think we all can relate to that. Piggybacking, I didn't hear a lot of earlier, but what Joanna said, somebody once said, um, like praying before a meal, and the, and the phrase was something along the lines of, you've had all day to pray, don't take the only time you sit down, like before a meal where you normally pray, to get all your prayer in. Mm. So if you've had all day to talk to the Lord, you should be just thankful for your food and enjoy your meal. And, that's... And, and that was really convicting to me. Don't let that be the only time I sit down to pray. But also, one, I'm, I'm more dedicated to be thankful for what's on my food or what's on my plate, who made it. Right. Um, thankful that we have food to eat but then also remembrance throughout the day to pray. Amen. Yeah, praying without ceasing, that that posture and that attitude of as things come up throughout the course of a day, I'm constantly thanking God for it or I'm praying for help in those moments or I'm praying for somebody else as needs arise. I think that's, that's really good. I think growing up like a completely unchurched child who occasionally got to go to church with my grandparents, 
I remember hearing them talk about the Lord's Prayer one time during a service, and I, you know, started just reading it, and I thought, oh my gosh, that's so pretty. Like, if I learn to pray that way, mm-hmm. I'll know what it feels like to know who Jesus is. And, I mean, I was probably five, six, seven, like, really young, and my grandmother had given me a plate with the Lord's Prayer on it because I told her about it, and I memorized that prayer, and I remember for so long saying it every night but feeling the same after Mm. I was done like there was just you know beginning to get frustrated and it's like this is all there is to a relationship with him this is nothing this isn't the hope that sustains you You I had so much else going on in my home that I needed more than some rote prayer when Zach and I um, when Cy was really young he was around uh, Nora's age we would say prayers with him every night, and then we would realize, like, when it's his turn to pray, I mean, he's saying things like, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. You don't know what that means as a child. You're repeating a rote prayer right. that you've heard, you know, us say, and that was very convicting for us that he's heard us say the same thing so many times that he thinks prayer is rote. So then, you know, we altered how we taught him about prayer, and I mean, it is like that. I know many people who are like, oh, well, I, I know the Apostles' Creed forwards and backwards. Well, great, but when's the last time we've been to church? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Um, that, that's why I think, you know, Jesus said, pray like this. Let me give you a model of how to pray, not, hey, if you pray this 10 times every day, you're you're going to be on the road to where you need to be as, as one of my disciples, um, which is how it's been abused in the Roman Catholic Church and, and some other religious traditions that identify as Christian. But that's no, very good, Sam. That's very, very good. I'm thankful that the Bible does have prayers for in our moments of utter brokenness where we can't find the words. Psalms. We, we yeah. just have the scriptures. Absolutely. To, just to be our cry. Sure. Well, with that in mind, and this this is terrific discussion. You guys are doing most of the talking, which is everything that I wanted for uh, these discussions. I'm grateful for your insights. We're going to now transition to that next heading, uh, Why Men Do Not Pray. And um, it's a pretty lengthy section. And I'm going to need, I would like four volunteers. The first person will read uh, from the line, Why Men Do Not Pray. Uh, and then they'll continue on to page eight to the phrase, I believe that few pray right there at the top. So would somebody be willing to read that um, volunteer? That first paragraph. Okay, so Alan will take that second one um, will be, uh, have you have you forgotten that phrase down to the end of that particular paragraph? Can I get a second volunteer for that one? Michelle, thank you. Um, and then the third paragraph, starting with the uh, phrase again, have you forgotten, uh, to the end of that, who would be willing to read that third? Seth, thanks, brother. And then the fourth one's going to take the have you forgotten all the way down to the end of the page. I can do that one. Thank you. And if we, depending on how much time we take here, and it's perfectly fine um, if we take a lot of time, this might wind up being where we end. We've already been going for uh, 45 minutes, so uh, there's a lot here to unpack, and 
I could go for three hours, but I know you guys have work tomorrow, so we'll probably we'll probably wrap it up after page eight. So, Alan, kick us off, brother. Have you forgotten that it is not natural to anyone to pray? The carnal mind is enmity against God. The desire of man's heart is to get far away from God and have nothing to do with Him. Man's feeling towards God is not love, but fear. Why then should a man pray when he has no real sense of sin, no real feeling of spiritual want, no thorough belief in unseen things, no desire after holiness and heaven? Of all these things, the vast majority of men know and feel nothing. The multitude walk in the broad way. I cannot forget this. Therefore, I say boldly, I believe that few pray. Mm. Have you forgotten that it is not fashionable to pray? It is one of the things that many would rather would be rather ashamed to own. There are hundreds who make there are hundreds who would sooner storm a breach or lead a forlorn hope than confess publicly that they make a habit of prayer. There are thousands who, if obliged to sleep in the same room with a stranger, would lie down in the bed without a prayer. To dress well, to go to theaters, to be clever and agreeable. All this is fashionable, but not to pray. I cannot forget this. I cannot think a habit is common that so many seem ashamed to own. I believe that few pray. Have you forgotten the lives that many live? Can we really believe that people are praying against sin night and day when we see them plunging into it? Mm Can we suppose they pray against the world when they are entirely absorbed and taken up with its pursuits? Can we think they really ask God for grace to serve Him when they, when they do not show the slightest desire to serve Him at all? Oh no, it is plain as daylight that the great majority of men either ask nothing of God or do not mean what they say when they do ask, which is just the same thing. Praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin, or sin will choke prayer. I cannot forget this. I look at men's lives. I believe that few pray. Have you forgotten the deaths that many die? How many? When they draw near death, seem... When they draw near death, seem entirely strangers to God. Not only are they sadly ignorant of His gospel, but sadly wanting in the power of speaking to Him. There is a terrible awkwardness and shyness in their endeavors to approach him. They seem to be taking up a fresh thing. They appear as if they wanted an introduction to God and as if they never talked with him before. I remember having heard of a lady who was anxious to have a minister to visit her in her last illness. She desired that he would pray with her. He asked her what he should pray for. She did not know and could not tell. She was utterly unable to name one thing which she wished him to ask God for her soul. All she seemed to want was the form of a minister's prayers. I can quite understand this. Deathbeds are great revealers of secrets. I cannot forget what I have seen of sick and dying people. This also leads me to believe that few pray. I cannot see your heart. I do not know your private history and spiritual things. But from what I see in the Bible and in the world, I am certain I cannot ask you... A more necessary question than that before you. Do you pray? Man. I think we can all agree that Ryle was quite the wordsmith. Very well written. A lot of convicting 
principles and statements that he says. Um, really, there's, there's two questions that I want us to discuss and then a point of application before we enter into our, our season of prayer. Um, first question, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing y'all's thoughts here. Since prayer is communion with God, is it possible for any sinner to truly pray to God if they have not yet been born again? What do y'all think about that question? Okay, a hair no. Why do you think, Sai? Why do you think that? And let's make sure we're aware of terminology. Does everybody know what born again means? Born again means that the Holy Spirit has, it's called regeneration, that is created new life in a spiritually dead soul, which we all know we're born um, into sin, we are conceived into sin, spiritually dead. Ryle says in the previous page that the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, the natural mind is enmity against God. So that's our natural state, right? We were dead in trespasses and sins, Romans 2.1, or excuse me, Ephesians 2.1. So... Um, when we speak of being born again, we're speaking of God supernaturally transforming a spiritually dead sinner into spiritual life. And then, of course, after that, they respond in saving faith. So the question is, just to make sure we're all on the same page there and, and for the listener's benefit, since we know prayer is fundamentally communing with God, talking with God, right? Save sinner, um, I'm going to just give him the answer away. Uh, <laughs> sinner and the creator. Can somebody who's not experienced the new birth actually genuinely engage in prayer? So Sai said no. And I want you to I want you to explain why you think that's the case. Well, because like, prayer has the connection with God. And if you're not connected with God, you can't be saved. Okay. So what would you say to um, the person who says, well, no, I've... I've um, you know, I've, I've prayed before, you know, and I've had some experiences, but, you know, from the testimony of their life, they're not saved or say they're a Muslim or something like that, where they have, they have some personal experience that in their minds, they have really done work with God. How would we explain to them that, you know, God may have heard your prayer, but you, you really weren't engaging in genuine, authentic communication with your creator. I want to hear I want to hear us flesh that out a little bit. I think Sai, think you said some good things for sure. So let, let's let me if I could if I could direct the conversation, let me ask it this way. Does God hear the prayer of the unbeliever? Okay, so when I say hear, I mean literally like when 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 I'm talking to you, you hear me, right? Does God hear the unbeliever when they pray? Physically, well, he has to because he knows all things. And Correct. He's everywhere. Correct. So God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And he's omniscient. He knows all things. So, yes, God does hear when a Muslim or a adherent to a different um, religion or when somebody who professes faith in Christ prays but ultimately um, they're not actually saved. He hears all of those efforts to pray. But prayer is, is His Spirit within you. Yeah. Saying, Abba, Father. It's, it's not 
I understand what you're. I, I know yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. I remember when I was in Sunday school. Um, before I got saved, I remember somebody saying that God doesn't hear your prayer mm. if you're not right with Him. And I said, well, then how do you ever get right with Him? <laughs> and I remember because it was serious. It was a serious dilemma. It's like, okay, well, I know I'm not right. I know I'm not right. Well, how do you get right with Him? How does He hear your prayer? And so what you're asking is, does He hear? Yeah, and, I, and I, you really said what I was wanting us to what I was wanting us to get at was um, God hears everything he knows everything right but until you're born again and until you respond to the act of supernatural regeneration with faith which we know of course from Ephesians 2 8 and 9 that that's also a gift from God um, until you're born again and respond in saving faith you do not engage in true communion with God you can say many words You can offer many long-winded petitions and pleas to the Creator. But until you've come from the moment of being plucked out of the domain of darkness and transferred into God's kingdom of light through faith in Jesus Christ, through an act of divine regeneration, until that takes place, you do not engage in true communion with God in prayer. As Alan said, quoting from Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is the one who testifies within us that we are the children of God, cries in our hearts, Abba, Father, and allows us to enter into that sweet communion that is reserved between the Creator and those of whom He's redeemed from the slave market of sin. But God will, God will not turn out, turn away a Cor- broken heart. Correct. He will, no, no, you're, you're, yeah. you're, it's, 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 it's really, so, so it's not confusing because it was confusing to me, you know, but... Right. It's like you said, when the Spirit makes you alive and you cry out and you realize, you know, who you are right. and, the, and, and the emptiness you have. And you mm-hmm. know, that's the that's the Spirit drawing you. And so you were saying, how do you talk to somebody that says that they believe, but they have no, you know, they, they've never been born again. Yeah. And the only way to do it is to continue to talk to them about the Scripture and tell sure. them about the, the being born again and talk to them. And, and until the Holy Spirit reveals to them, sure, you know, I mean, but you be faithful to tell them the truth. You don't, right? Because you don't know. We don't know how many people we worship with every Sunday that have no idea, correct, about being born again. Sure, or that think they're born again but aren't actually born Absolutely. again. Absolutely. And to your and to your point, um, speaking of that brokenness, only those whom God has regenerated experiences that true brokenness. Mm-hmm. So regeneration must take place. The new birth must always take place to lead us to justification through faith alone and to ultimately lead us to genuine communion with God through prayer. Um, that was really what I was going for with the question, and I'm really grateful for um, the thoughtful responses there. Any- it's kind of like this along the same lines of like how you have common grace and special grace. Like God hears our prayers because he knows everything. Yeah. But it's just a different... Right. So, so to your point, to your question, there's times in God's providence for reasons known only to himself where an unbeliever offers up a prayer, what they were praying for comes to pass. And it's like, well, look, God answered my prayer. Well, God being a God who offers forth common grace, as Brittany just mentioned, God in his sovereignty and in his wisdom, he orchestrates all the affairs of the world and the redemptive history 
to accomplish his eternal purposes. Sometimes that includes, by happenstance, the petitions offered from an unbeliever. Now, that doesn't mean God's pleased with those prayers. It doesn't mean that that person was communing with God in prayer. But it does mean that God is merciful and gracious and does extend common grace to all of mankind. That special grace, as you pointed out, Brittany, that is that intimate fellowship with Heavenly Father and adopted son or daughter in Christ where the Holy Spirit that dwells within them cries out, Abba, Father, and, in, and allows them to engage in true fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the act of prayer. That in and of itself is dependent upon divine regeneration. That brings us back to the sovereignty of God, does it not? God is even sovereign over who gets to pray with him and who doesn't. And when I say pray, I'm talking communion. I mean, anybody can offer a, a prayer, a petition. You know, we're talking about God is sovereign and he's the ultimate person or the ultimate being who determines who gets to engage in that intimate, close fellowship with him. And that should cause us to praise him all the more for that because we know him and we get to pray to him as we're going to do here in just a few moments. So second question then, based on this lengthy section that we just read together. To what extent do you agree with Ryle about the relationship he draws between prayer and sin? And I want us to go back. It's right there towards the middle of page 8. He says, Can we suppose... They pray against the world when they are entirely absorbed and taken up with its pursuits. Can we think they really ask God for grace to serve him when they do not show the slightest desire to serve him at all? Oh no, it is plain as daylight that the great majority of men either ask nothing of God or do not mean what they say when they do ask, which is just the same thing. And then he concludes, Praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. And by sinning, he's talking about an ongoing, habitual, unbroken lifestyle pattern of sin. Praying and sinning, Ryle says, will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin. In other words, prayer will cause us to come to repentance and to to, to, to be driven away from that particular sin that we're committing. Prayer is either going to cause us to flee from sin, to turn away from sin, or sin is going to choke out prayer. Sin is going to cause us to flee from God, to push back against communing with him. And he says, I cannot forget this. I look at men's lives, and I believe that few pray. To what extent do you find that argumentation from Ryle persuasive or biblical? Do you guys all agree with what he's getting at there? I think we all agree. You know, I thought... um, Somebody pull up 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. I was reflecting on this principle in preparation for tonight, and I thought these verses were relevant to, to what Ryle's getting at here. Who would be willing to read those, those three verses for us? All right, go for it, Sam. This is a message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Amen. So the key here, I think, are the terms fellowship 
and walk. Okay, when we talk about walking, we're talking about a, a habitual, ongoing, repetitive lifestyle pattern. And we talk about fellowship, we're talking about intimate communion that is exclusively reserved for those of whom God has drawn to himself through saving faith, through the work of regeneration, which leads to faith. And John is saying here that if you claim to have that intimate, personal fellowship with God, and yet your lifestyle pattern is marked by unbroken, habitual patterns of sin, then you're lying. You're deceived. You're not truly having that fellowship with God that you claim to have. Conversely, if you walk in the light as God himself is the light, if your walk is characterized by repentance and by striving to worship God from a transformed heart and wanting to put him on display in every aspect of life that he's entrusted to you, if that's categorical of your life, verse 7, then the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed you from sin. You're a believer. You are the real deal. And I think that's exactly what Ryle's getting at here. He's saying that if, if you are a believer and you're walking in an unbroken pattern of sin, then you're going to experience backsliding because you're not going to go before the Lord in prayer. You're not going to be doing everything in your power to flee from that sin. Why? Because you're living in an, on, in an ongoing pattern. So if you're in an unbroken pattern of sin, it's either one of two realities. You either don't really have fellowship with God who himself is light. In him there is no darkness. Or you're, you do know God. You do have fellowship with God in the sense of being a believer. But that temporal experiential fellowship that you, do, that you would otherwise have if you were walking in the light, that's been hindered for a season and you're going to enter into a period of backsliding. And of course, as we know from other parts of Scripture, namely Hebrews 12, if that is you, God is going to discipline you to bring you out of that pattern of unrepentant, unbroken sin. Conversely, if you're walking in an ongoing, unbroken pattern of repentance and putting God on display, modeling submission to the Lordship of Christ, if that's you, then your prayer life is going to be vibrant. You're going to walk in a lifestyle of thankfulness, you're going to do everything you can to seek God's face. And in light of that, you'll see continual growth in sanctification. Not to say that the, the believer who's in a period of unbroken sin isn't going to be sanctified. They will be. God loves them too much, and he's too gracious to let them go down that path and ultimately either fall away from their faith or um, die in an unbroken pattern of sin. He will do whatever it takes to bring them out of that to restore them in that personal, intimate fellowship, that sweetness of communion with God that they had prior to entering into that season of unrepentant sin. And that is a promise that we have on the basis of Hebrews 12. Um, we see it echoed in 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul's talking about what God was doing um, in the church in Corinth when people were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy fashion. We know that God is so gracious and so loving and so merciful that he will not ultimately allow those who belong to him to remain an unbroken pattern of sin indefinitely. He will draw them out of that eventually by whatever means necessary. So sin will either choke out your prayer life and by extension your experiential intimacy with God or prayer is going to consume sin. It's going to push you away from temptation. It's going to push you away from um, 
uh, walking in a way that brings dishonor to God, that that brings um, reproach upon the kingdom of God and his glory. Anyone have any additional thoughts on that principle? I really like that, that little phrase. Um, Prayer will consume sin or sin will choke prayer. It's a nice little bumper sticker quote, uh, coffee mug quote we could use. Finally, one that Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's only eight <laughs> words, so I, I think that's a that's a good. Re- sign out there, I mean that that really that really <laughs> is. Oh, I mean, that would be good. Well, that would and be it great. Made, I mean, to me, at first when I read that, I wasn't thinking it as in ongoing sin, and so I was hesitant to agree with it because. Like you can pray and still sin because you will always be Correct. in a sinner's body. But Correct. ongoing, yes, that makes sense because, like in Romans eight twenty six, it says, "Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for, mm. as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Mm. So every time you pray." You know, there's that connection between the spirit knowing what the will is, will of God is, mm-hmm. obviously because they are three in one, and the things that you are praying for, even those you can't find the words for, are being spoken according to His will. Absolutely. So if you're always maintaining that connection naturally, you know, allowing the Holy Spirit to work within your life, then it would drive out ongoing sin. Absolutely. Or at least keep the conviction of sin alive within your life so Mm -hmm. that you know, like, this is wrong. Right. Not, I've turned that voice off. I'm not sure that it's wrong. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Ryle, he didn't teach a doctrine of Christian perfectionism, which is the view that after being saved, you no longer sin. If that's what he was teaching, I would 100% say no, like, uh, when he makes the comment, praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Obviously, to, to some extent, every single second of our lives, even as Christians, we're still falling short of the glory of God. We're not loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're, lo- we're not loving our neighbor as ourselves. So if, if that's what Ryle is referring to, then we got to say, Ryle, you've gone too far. Of course, praying and sinning in that respect is going to live in the same heart because we're always going to be in sin to a certain degree. What Ryle's saying is the habitual pattern of life. And that's, if you read 1 John, that's what John is getting at. The key to understanding 1 John is to understand phrases like walk and fellowship, or if he uses the the plural sins, you know, um, I'll just give you an example of how this is abused by some who, have espoused a doctrine of Christian perfectionism. Well, actually, this is more pertains to Roman Catholicism. First uh, John one nine: If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some people would look at that verse and say, "You see, you've got to confess every single sin that you ever commit; otherwise, you're you're not right with God." Um, the other text that I had in mind from First John, First John three six. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. 
people go to that verse and will say, well, see, look, if you're in Christ, you no longer sin. So Christians must be perfect. There must not be any sin in the life of those who truly belong to Christ. Well, what people who hold to that view fail to realize is that the Greek term for sins is in the, the present, ongoing, active tense, meaning that he's referring to habitual, ongoing pattern of a lifestyle. He's not talking about individual sins that we may or may not commit. He's talking about if you are in Christ, you're not going to live a lifestyle of ongoing, unbroken pattern of sin. Um, it's key to understand certain aspects of 1 John in that light, because for what, what John's getting at in 1 John is he's trying, to, he's trying to educate and inform his readers about how they can know they have eternal life, how they can have assurance of their salvation. And um, again, just to drive it right back home to what Ryle's getting at here, I think the only way we can understand what he's saying is um, praying as an act of, of, of a lifestyle pattern of ongoing prayer, whether it be individual prayer or, or corporate prayer, and sinning being an, un, an ongoing, unbroken, habitual lifestyle pattern of sinning. I think he's, 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 he's emphasizing the lifestyle pattern more so than little isolated um, instances there. Does that make sense? Yes. Fantastic. Well, one point of application um, that I'm going to share a story that I've heard from Dr. James White in the past that I, I think pertains to that final paragraph here, and, and then we'll transition into our time of group prayer for our church and for one another. Um, in, in that last paragraph, you know, Ryle talks about people who are near death or on their deathbed. Death is knocking at the door, right? He says that... Um, there's a terrible awkwardness and shyness in their endeavors to approach God. They appear as if they wanted an introduction to God, as if they'd never talked with him before. And he shares this, the tragic story of a lady who she really didn't even know how to pray. She didn't even know what she needed prayer for. She just knew that I'm about to die and it's just kind of the right thing to have a minister pray over me before I die. So, I'm desperate for that, right? He shares that general story of that personal account that he was aware of. Um, I have a encouraging story to share with you guys. It's the exact opposite of this report that Ryle is testifying to, and it comes from James White. Uh, James White told a story. This is from years ago. I, I heard it in a, um, a sermon that he was giving, and I'll never forget it. One of the elders at his church, where he was also an elder, um, was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he's on his deathbed, and he's about to go um, be with the Lord. He was a believer. And the elders were alongside his bed, and they were singing hymns and reading scripture and just fellowshipping, trying to encourage him. And they were about to leave for the day, and they asked um, the elder with terminal cancer, um, how, how do you feel right now? Um, are, are you prepared to meet your God for the first time face to face? And he looked at him with tears in his eyes and a smile on his face. He said, I've known God for over 50 years of my life. I won't be getting introduced to him for the first time. I've known him for 50 plus years. And he was confident going into the face of death that the only thing that was going to change was that he was going to be without sin 
and he was going to be face to face with the God who had redeemed him from the slave market of sin, who had changed his life, brought him from spiritual death to spiritual life through faith in Jesus Christ alone. My friends, a vibrant, ongoing lifestyle pattern of prayer is what nurtures that kind of assurance and comfort in the face of death. It's one thing to have sound doctrine. We should all strive for sound doctrine. You know me, I'm all for studying the rich, deep truths of God, and I know many of you guys are as well. But my friends, we need to make sure we're equally as passionate about our vertical piety, our our, our intimacy with God, our willingness and frequency to go to Him with everything, to be broken over sin, to be dependent upon Him, to sustain us and to allow us to be who he's called us to be in Christ. That's got to be at the forefront of our minds, equally, maybe even more so important than knowing the word of God inside and out. The demons have better theology than you and I will ever have. They've been around for thousands of years. But what we can do by the grace of God is we can praise God and worship God and commune with him through prayer. And I trust that this lesson and hopefully the Remaining lessons that we have in our study of a call to prayer will do just that, that we would be those who go to him in prayer frequently and that our passion for communion with him in prayer would be equal to our desire to know his word. So with that in mind, that is going to conclude our time of study tonight. To the listener, I hope you were blessed by our discussion and our study, and I wish you nothing but the best in your own personal walk with the Lord. would encourage you to spend some time with him in prayer as we do the same here um, at the conclusion of our lesson. Thank you for listening, and God bless.